from McMinnville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that loves to go to the movies. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is The Crispies. Hey, Chad. Good afternoon, Michael. So we're, we have a special guest with us today to talk about the movies. He's a big fan of the movies and a big fan of our podcast. So that's a rare combination, I think. <laughs> but he's been suggesting that we do an episode like this for a long time. And so we're bringing him in. Who is our guest today, Chad? Dr. Kevin Curry, who's our colleague in the journalism and media studies department. And he informed us that in addition to being a huge movie fan, he is also eminently qualified having worked in a movie theater before. So wow, yeah. <laughs> welcome, Kevin. And thanks for joining us to talk about some cool movies. Oh, I'm excited. You guys are the ones that allow me to to sound smart about science when I share things with my friends because I can learn like how engines work or how bees operate and then I can share that with my friends and sound smart so I really appreciate it oh, oh, cool. oh you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've decided that we'll probably do several of these episodes, I think, that we want to give an award to the best science fiction movies out there. But we have to narrow it down to specific types of science fiction. And so today we're going to be doing space flight and space travel. And by the way, I got a trophy for the winning picture. It's this human standing here holding up an orb of truth. He's also in his other hand is holding a racket to swat away the lies. Excellent. Excellent. I don't know that it could be interpreted as any other type of trophy so sure well we'll have to get in touch with the uh, studio of whatever the winning movie is so that we can <laughs> they'll want to add that yeah, put that on their imdb that. imdb list for <laughs> yeah. uh, their awards <laughs> So you said we're going to focus on space travel. And so I assume this is going to be Star Wars episodes four through six and a whole bunch of Star Trek. Is that your thought? No, we specifically decided that. So in both of those franchises, it's assumed that they have artificial gravity by some mechanism that is never described. And they both do faster than light travel. So we disqualified all of those movies. Instead, we have five nominees. And the nominees are Apollo 13 from 1995, Interstellar <laughs> from 2014, 2001, a Space Odyssey from 1968, Gravity from 2013, and The Martian from 2015. But why don't we talk through each movie and give our pros and cons for each of them. Kevin, could you start us off? Can you tell us what happened in Apollo 13? Sure. This is a Curry family favorite. Anytime it's on, we drop in and you can't get out of it. You have to watch it till the end. And yep. even at the end, still gets a little dusty in the house during the blackout period. But Apollo 13 is a historical telling of the Apollo 13 lunar mission, which after an oxygen tank explodes, they have to uh, scrub the landing plan and figure out how to save the astronauts and get them home safely. It's based on the astronauts, Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert. If you're thinking of the characters, Tom Hanks plays Jim Lovell, Bill Paxton, the great and late Bill Paxton plays Fred Hayes, and Kevin Bacon plays Jack Swigert. And they have to work with the NASA crew on the ground, including Ed Harris, who plays uh, Gene Krantz. And in order to try to save the astronauts and get them home safely with only what is on board. And who is, there was somebody else on the ground. Yeah. So the, uh, there was also he was the, sick. It's, it's Lieutenant Dan. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise. Yes, that's right. He uh, allegedly got exposed to the measles, which he never had an outbreak, but he had to stay back. But it was good that he stayed back because then they had this top notch astronaut helping them solve the problem. Yeah. So I warned you before before we started this podcast that you're not allowed to ruin this movie for us because it's <laughs> one of my wife and my favorite movie. So if you tell me like, oh yeah, none of that's true. 
I may stop yeah. watching movies entirely. Yeah, the moon landings didn't actually happen, Kevin. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's first talk about what this does really, really well. The weightless scenes are absolutely amazing because they actually use NASA training flights to do so. There's this famous, it's called the Vomit Comet, where the plane will fly in this parabolic arcs. It'll fly up really high and then just like fall down quickly in order to match how you would do a free fall. And so if you're free falling along with the entire airplane, then you are relative to the airplane weightless and everything inside the airplane as well is also weightless. And that is actually why people are weightless in space is because even if you're in the International Space Station, you're orbiting around and you're falling at the same rate at which the entire spacecraft is falling. And so that's where the weightlessness comes from. And so that part of this was extremely accurate. You know, and they had scenes where they're like having water and sucking that up. And you can see like people on the videos from the ISS where that's exactly what it looks like because that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So when you say they're falling at the same rate, the International Space Station is basically falling over the edge of the horizon, right? So it's not like a straight down perpendicular to the earth kind of falling. Yeah. But it's basically going so fast that each time it tries to fall down, it's still missing the earth basically is how I like to think about it. Is the International Space Station, is it in a totally stable orbit so that it would literally be up there forever or is it degrading very very slowly and eventually it'll without being pushed back up it actually does degrade significantly it's it's in a low enough orbit that it must be coming in contact with some of the atmosphere because it seems to degrade pretty quickly they have to push it back up on a very regular time schedule it averages about 400 kilometers above the earth but it changes significantly depending on what they've done with the orbit and so forth so when the rockets were going to the moon maybe in the case of the movie they had they would have to readjust their flight path with a burn. Mm-hmm. Does that produce enough pressure at all to create some artificial gravity within the cockpit or within the spaceship? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, but that's it's sort of like when you're in an elevator. It first starts going down and you're like, whoa. And then the rest of the time that you're on the, the elevator part, you're now going at this constant velocity and so you get your weight back and it's only when you are stopping that you feel another like whoa yeah during the actual motion yeah your body gets i guess to be moving the same speed so the floats again it's only during those moments of acceleration and deceleration that you would experience correct yeah good okay so also this movie was very realistic because it was basically a historical account i'm sure they took some liberties to make it more dramatic but it's hard to imagine how you can make it more dramatic than spending several days in space knowing that you might very well die so yeah this is a fantastic movie so don't they decide that they have to go all the way out past and around the moon yep and so what are they accomplishing by that that they had to do that because that ended up making the trip way way longer why did they decide to do that rather than just sort of turn off the engines and then orient back and then point back right so that entire flight they already turned off all the engines once they were out in space and Uh, traveling the way they were the engines were not going anymore and so in order to stop like you're saying you'd have to fire the engines backwards to completely stop your momentum and then a little bit more to make you head back towards the earth that would burn too much fuel and they probably didn't have enough they probably did not plan to have that for the the mission and so in order to actually make it back they had to let that just play out because it was headed towards the moon anyway let them just kind of whip around there and then come back so the fuel savings came from them not having to slow down and stop and to turn around but they right. just, you could just do a U-turn around the moon right. and head back, which, spoiler alert, happens in The Martian too, but we'll wait until we talk about The Martian. Yes. So 
there's the very dramatic re-entry scene, right? Where they're coming back in. And so, I mean, I think I have an understanding of they're going at such a high rate of speed that the collisions with the molecules of the atmosphere are heating up the surface. And how is that interfering with their ability to communicate? And that, is that a function of the technology at the time? Or is, is that still how astronauts have to experience that sort of blackout period when they're coming back in? I, mm-hmm. I would assume that's still the case, but I, I'm not sure why. I don't know the the reason for the blackout. Yeah, I didn't. I don't totally know all the details of that, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that. But fortunately, it exists because it made for a very dramatic ending. Yeah. yeah. Even though you've seen it at 10 to 1,000 times, you are still nervous for those astronauts during the blackout period. Yeah. All right, let's go from nervous about astronauts to nervous about the entire planet of Earth. Survival of mankind. <laughs> oh, my. Interstellar. What happens in that movie? Hard to say, actually. So this is set in a not too distant future, and the Earth is kind of on its current trajectory of unmanageable changes due to climate change and crops are starting to fail. So there's this idea that perhaps we can colonize elsewhere in the universe and Matthew McConaughey gets dragooned into being part of this mission. He has like a background of like a pilot or something like that. Mm -hmm. So previously NASA had sent out these 12 other astronauts to go through a wormhole, which I want to ask you about wormholes here in a moment, which then allowed them to go to all these different very distant places in the universe that were potential new inhabitable settlements. So Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway led this mission to go and figure out which of these different planets they should go to to check up on the astronauts. And this movie at least attempts to consider some of the issues relating to time and what it would actually mean to be traveling those vast different distances in the universe whether it's even feasible, if it were even feasible, what would have to be able to happen. And then it gets into these other weird considerations of like extra dimensions that I always get very confused by. And so ultimately, I guess this is a bit of a spoiler. (laughs) 10 uh, years. Yeah, right. Okay, fair enough. But ultimately, (laughs) Matthew McConaughey discovers that he is in this situation where time is a flat circle and he's able to communicate with his own daughter in the past. And that sort of explains some of the weird anomalous behaviors that they noticed in their house previously. And it turns out it was him the whole time. He was in the house. Ah! Just in the far distant future. So, I mean, it's got the climate change angle and it's got the um, interstellar travel issue. And then it's about the power of love in various conceptions and whether that is this extra dimensional force that we can feel but don't fully understand and whether, whether it's enough just to feel it do we have to understand its source good yeah, so, that's a good explanation and i'm very confused <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is one of this yeah, is one of the Christopher Nolan, Nolan movies. Yeah. And I, when I think about apparently I'm a big fan of of his work. So You should be. He's great. Yeah. Well, one thing that this movie does very well is that he collaborated closely with someone named Kip Thorne from Caltech, who is apparently an astrophysicist and studies black holes. And so throughout, they worked very close together to write this and make sure that it was mostly accurate in science. So actually, Kip Thorne wrote a book after this movie came out about how accurate the science actually is. I have not read it, but good on him cashing in. So uh, (laughs) a lot of the work with the black holes is very cool. And I I will assume that he knows more about black holes than I do. And 
visually, it was really something to look at. Yeah. What's the basic science behind black holes? So black holes are just so massive an object that they actually bend space and time towards them. But basically, their gravitational pull is so much that nothing can escape them. So like we're talking about space travel here. So if you're going to blast off of the surface of the Earth, you have to get up to a certain speed. Otherwise, you'll eventually fall back down. Right. And so that's what's called the escape velocity. And black holes are so massive that the escape velocity is something faster than the speed of light. And so nothing can actually, not even light can escape it. I think that in the popular imagination, they're called holes, which seems to suggest an empty space. And so it's actually quite the opposite of that, right? They're actually very full of very, very dense matter. Mm -hmm. I guess the thing that makes them look like a hole is what you're saying is that even light cannot escape because it doesn't have this sufficient escape velocity. Right. And so, for instance, we have a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way, and you can actually look at stars and as they're passing behind this empty void, so you can watch stars and track them orbiting around nothing, it looks like. But every once in a while, they'll pass directly behind this black hole, and you'll see the light from that star just warped and changed and stuff as they're tracking them. So one of the things that is an important part of this movie is this time dilation aspect. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how many times you talk to me about relativity, <laughs> I still feel same like, <laughs> yeah, I still feel like a small child. And so there's something about, because they're on this planet that is so close to a black hole time is moving much slower relative to what it is on earth and so Correct. like an hour or something on this planet that is near a black hole is years and years of elapsed time on earth yep okay so that just it always feels very weird to me so the position i'm in in the universe everything is slowed down why help me understand that i think the best way to talk about it is just that it does in fact happen <laughs> don't ask me why trust I mean, <laughs> trust you <laughs> but that you know for instance we have satellites orbiting the earth and because they are experiencing a different gravity than earth we have to keep changing the clock regularly to do that we actually had some people who study time on the show back in february right and they talked about how they have clocks that are so accurate that they could tell if they put their clock up a little bit higher that time was different for those atoms we also have had satellites orbiting around within our solar system System and sending back like a constant beep, 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 beep. And when they go near the sun, we get a distortion in that we're normally getting this regular pattern of beeping. And then it is distorted by the sun's gravity because it gets warped just a little bit. So we know this happens, but compared to a black hole, this is all stuff that is happening at very, very small gravity. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of ramp that up and be like, okay, so what would happen if we were near something that had incredible amounts of gravity? Okay. And so I guess I'm just thinking that if you were close enough to a black hole that it slowed time down that much, mm -hmm. are you not close enough to just get pulled in? So all the orbiting dynamics are the same. Like oh, okay. I said, within the Milky Way, there are stars that are orbiting around the supermassive black hole. And they're just orbiting it as if it's just like this big, heavy thing. You know, I mean, it would be the same question with all the space travel we're talking about. Oh, I'm orbiting around the Earth. Well, why doesn't Earth's gravity just pull me in? Well, it does, but I'm also moving, so I'm able to orbit around it. Okay. And the concept in Interstellar is that they're going to visit these two or three planets that are near the black hole, and the, their distance from the black hole changes the time spent, a certain number of days per hour or whatever. Right. Is that yeah. the idea? Yeah. So the ones that are really, really close will have a lot more warped time relatively. 
and then the ones that are farther away will be more normal. And that's because of the gravity. Because of the gravity. Yep. Okay. So then at one point they say the only thing that can cross dimensions is gravity. Yeah, I don't know what that meant. <laughs> okay. I think, although then, as Chad said in his introduction, maybe it was because of love. Right. Love is the strongest force in the universe. So one of the things that I found really cool was that planet that had those huge tidal waves. And I assume that's just the effect of the moon on steroids. Right. Yeah, exactly. That tidal forces come from, it's the difference between, say, the front side and the back side of a planet, that the gravitational pull of something else. Because on the front side, you're closer, you're going to get tugged more towards them. And on the back side, you're farther away. So you'll be tugged less, essentially. Just like we have tides happening here on Earth, that as the moon is going around the Earth, it's pulling on the oceans to bring up the ocean level a little bit. You know, and we're talking about a few feet here on the Oregon coast, right? But you can imagine if we're talking about trying to rotate near a black hole where the forces are so tremendous that so a high tide, so like a high tide on the Oregon coast is right. when we're when the moon is closest to us. Then? When the moon is directly overhead, basically. Okay. And when we have really, really high tide is when both the sun and the moon are both sort of in the same part of the sky and they're both tugging on the the oceans in the same way so that was very cool i appreciated the tidal forces of and just thinking about that okay other big space travel issue is this concept of a wormhole which i believe was was that set up by some sort of extraterrestrial intelligence or something or something yeah. like that but anyway yeah. so okay wormholes yes no feasible so they're a theoretical construct the idea is that, so we just said that gravity can bend space and time. That the the way a lot of people will describe it is like, oh, well, think about like, if I can find some way to bend space so much that or time so much that like a piece of paper, I could fold the piece of paper and have two ends of it touch, then you'd have a pathway to instantaneously jump from one end of the paper to the other end, rather than having to follow all the way around the side of it. And so wormholes come from really Einstein's gravity. And at the moment, it's just a theoretical construct, but there's no way to do it physically right now. But one thing I will say about it is that this would be a way, if this were possible, this would be a way to instantly travel to another part of the, the universe. Actually, there was another movie that, that did that and they turned it into a TV show. There's something about Egyptian... Stargate? Stargate, Stargate? yeah. And they opened up a wormhole. And movie. Yeah, anyway, but that's not nominated yeah. for this episode. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, so a wormhole is within the realm of possibility. And so I'm glad that they had that rather than saying, oh, let's do faster than light travel to get to these other planets, you know? That's at least a device based in theory that this could exist. Of yeah. course, they have to add on to it. I think Chad's right. In this story, it was some other intelligent life that put it there for us to, to find, find and yeah. save ourselves or something. But our next movie, we're going to be talk about how some sort of intelligent beings leave things behind for us to find. And so, all right. So what is problematic about this? I would say like the time travel, I don't totally understand it. That seemed very convenient for all of us. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Yeah. Also, Chad, can you tell us about the entire Earth just decided to have a global blight? A crop blight is what they called it. And it was uh, rolling. So it was like certain species would get blighted and then another one yeah. would be. Because I remember them saying like, well, now we can't grow okra anymore. We just have to grow corn. Well, I would say that this is probably much more feasible than the wormhole. It's more than just a theoretical construct. I mean, we have lost crops to global blights before. So like, for example, up until the mid to late 1900s, the bananas you would get in the grocery store were of a different variety 
variety. And so the bananas we have now, they weren't really a very common variety of banana to have until a global fungus or a nematode or some sort of thing basically took out the entire supply of that other strain of banana. And so Mm. it switched over to the bananas we now have in the grocery store. And whenever you have a very widely distributed, very low genetic diversity kind of crop plant like that, if a disease takes hold and is able to make use of it, then it very well could just run through a whole lot of it because all of the crop plants are equally susceptible to whatever the disease happens to need. So that's one thing. And then the other issue is that climate change extends the season when a lot of these pest things might be able to be active. And so rather than having sort of like a cold part of the year when it sort of kills off the blight or the insect or the whatever it is that's causing the problem, now there might not even be a time of year when the thing can't be growing and reproducing. Both of those are very real concerns and on the radar of things to be concerned as a consequence of climate change. But then the other thing that they dealt with in that movie was also like desertification and all the dust on everything. Mm -hmm. That's also a very real phenomenon. Well, all right. Thanks for bringing us down then, Chad. Yeah, great. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's why we've got to find another planet. I mean... All right, so let's move on to 2001, A Space Odyssey. This is actually from 1968, which is amazing because we didn't land on the moon until 1969. And I'll, I'll try to do the synopsis. I watched it for a second time, and I read a bunch of things in between that time so that I knew what was going on. And so apparently there's some giant black box leads to evolutionary changes for anything that touches it. And so, for instance, at the beginning of the movie, there are these apes who touch it, and they learn how to use tools, and they kill other apes. And then fast forward, a long time they travel out to the moon and there's another black box on the moon and so then those people touch that and as soon as they touch that then another one pops up outside of somewhere near jupiter and so then then they send another space mission out to jupiter and dr dave bowman played by Kier dulia when he gets near it all of a sudden he gets really old and eats food and then he gets really young and is giant and it didn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't know. The first time I watched it, I kind of fell asleep through parts of it. And so I was like, okay, that was my fault. But even with the second viewing, I don't know. I That's like two and a half hours of my life. I'm, I'm never getting back. <laughs> a few years ago, my oldest kid gave me the book for Christmas and the book is really good. Oh, and so it yeah. feels like it might be one of those that is didn't quite hold up as well. Although 2001 is kind of revered when it comes to science fiction by many people. And yeah. we're going to talk about a couple of things that these, these later movies that are in the 21st century have taken the things introduced by 2001 and built on them. So it's kind of important canon to film science fiction. Yeah, the scene when the apes are like about to beat somebody and the Wagner music playing and everybody has been exposed to that scene, whether they've seen the movie or not. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows about that. And even though they don't know that where that really came from. Yeah, and the computer, um, Hal, right? Hal. Yeah. And, you know, open the pod bay door, Hal. Yeah. Um, and talking about artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and how dangerous that might be. And that it also did very well thinking about having artificial gravity by using rotation. That is a true thing. You know, like we should all go out to the playground here in town and get on the spinning thing. The merry-go-round. Yeah. You know, so if, if we spin that around, like it, it feels like you're getting thrown backwards off of it. And that's a real thing that you could actually utilize that to make artificial gravity. And let's say that the spacecraft was one story high. So about 14 feet radius out. Then 
then if they could make this spin about 13 or 14 times per minute, then you would feel like the normal gravity would experience on Earth. And two other films in our group here use that same concept. So Interstellar had had the yeah. spinning and then we'll see it again in The Martian. Yeah. So this is seems to be kind of one of the birthplaces of that concept. Now, is anybody, as we consider going to Mars, is anybody thinking about spinning gravitational things? I think you would have to because there would be too much muscle deterioration if you didn't have something like that to keep you going. Because just us sitting in our chairs right now, our muscles are doing a lot of stuff that we don't think about. But if we were in space and didn't have to do like these little micro adjustments just to make sure that we keep our balance and all this stuff, you would have no muscle tone by the time you made it to Mars. Right. And I think another issue related to that is you lose a lot of bone density. And so that would probably be another reason why I don't know if Mars is far enough for that to be an issue. I would guess it would be. But for even further ones, you would want to have some sort of gravity. Yeah. So it's not just because it'd be more comfortable for the astronauts. Well, I've, I've actually heard that it's nice to have gravity just because otherwise I heard an interview with uh, what's his name on the International Space Station. Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. And he was talking about how when you're up there, like you have a sinus infection the entire time. You're just stuffed up oh. because you don't have gravity to just kind of clear out some of that stuff. I would have never thought of that. Yeah, me neither. Now, this movie is problematic besides the plot. Some things I noticed were they just said that it would take about a year to get to Jupiter, but typically it's going to take three to four years. Do you think... So this was made in 1968. We just didn't have an understanding of how long it would actually take to get out there. I think people at NASA would have known. Yeah, they probably figured that by the time 2001 rolls around, technology will have increased to the point that we'll be able to get there much faster. Yeah. yeah I mean, you're supposed to have hoverboards by now, according to Back to the Future. Too. That's true. And so what have we been doing with ourselves? Another problem was that so when they were on their travel to Jupiter, the whole problem with Hal is that Hal said, oh, you've got this antenna is about to go back. You have to go out there, fix the antenna and come back. Then they brought the antenna back in and they're like, there's nothing wrong with this thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I've never made a mistake before, but, you know, whatever. And so then they, the two astronauts, and they're like, hey, should we disconnect Hal? He screwed up. And then Hal was like, like hell you are, and killed all of them. So once again, artificial intelligence. Yeah. But a big issue here was that they had an untethered spacewalk, meaning that when they went out to replace the part, how they were set up to do it, he had this little spacecraft that went around there, and then he jumped out the back of it to, you know, fix whatever he had to fix. That would never happen because you could fly off into space, which is what Hal made him do later on. And so, yeah, anytime that you're doing a spacewalk of any sort, you are tied to the space station. You have a lot of ropes, a lot of chains. You would never just be out in space for no reason like that. And then another problem that I noticed was that once the one astronaut was killed and thrown into space, then Dave Bowman went out, tried to get the astronaut back, and then realized that he left his helmet in the cargo hold. And so Hal was like, well, you're going to die because I have your helmet in here. And so he did this thing where he, he jumped through space without his helmet and closed the doors and saved himself and then disconnected Hal and so forth. But the problem is there's no air in space. And so the pressure difference between his lungs and outer space would have been tremendous. And so that would be very hard to handle that change in pressure that quickly. So are you saying that because of that pressure difference, he would have vacated his lungs just immediately? He wouldn't have had the strength not to just exhale all the air that was in his lungs. Right. It's something that we don't think about here on Earth. We have about 13 pounds per square foot, I think, of air pressure just on us all the time. And we're just used to it. And without that, it would be very hard to keep the air in our lungs. Um, also, you know, you've 
heard of the bends, like people who go deep sea diving and stuff. So when you go deep, the pressure is so much greater that the air in your body actually gets compressed more. And then when you're trying to come back up, you have to do it slowly so that you can push out the extra air out of your body. The same thing would sort of happen to Dave as he's flying through space. He's got all this air that would try to suddenly expand out to nothing. And so he would somewhat explode internally. It would be a bad scene is what I'm saying. <laughs> so is that probably what would do more damage than some sort of like instant freezing? Because I feel like there are other movies where the trope is that the moment that a space shield comes up or something like that, you know, that, yeah, that's just right. Frozen. We should have an episode about coldness and how you freeze things and don't. Freeze I thought it was going to be what kills you in space first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, this is considered a, a masterpiece by it's always on the lists of greatest hundred movies ever. It's somewhere on the list always. And I don't personally see it. It was all right. So let's move on and talk about gravity from 2013. Kevin, would you like to take a stab at this one? Yeah, sure. So uh, Dr. Ryan Stone, played by Sandra Bullock, who was uh, nominated for Best Actress this year for this performance. Congratulations. And Matt Kowalski, played by George Clooney, are repairing the Hubble satellite Mm -hmm. when space debris destroys the space shuttle that they had taken up to do the repair. Dr. Stone must make her way to the International Space Station using only her jetpack and her wits. But the International Space Station isn't safe either from this debris, and she's forced again to jump to the yeah. Tian Gong Station. She then must ditch Tian Gong in the ocean. Yeah, and so this was uh, actually did did really well. It's the first of, of a three year run of movies we're talking about today. So Gravity came out in 2013, and then Interstellar was 2014, and then The Martian was 2015. So it's interesting that you know all these were in development at the same time. Mm-hmm. They all came out in the fall, but they obviously would have known that other people were doing space-related movies. So it's really interesting that you have this run in Hollywood of three really popular. They all did really well. Of them mm-hmm. all, Gravity actually gets the most Oscar nominations and wins. Really? And yeah, it ended up winning for Best Cinematography, Best Director, Best Film Editing, Dramatic Score, Sound Editing, Sound Mixing, and Visual Effects. Hmm. Interstellar only wins for Visual Effects. And then uh, The Martian gets completely shut out. So it almost seems like Hollywood voters were like, eh, we gave all that to Gravity in 2013. So, you know, we're going to change up and spread the love and Interstellar and The Martian got the short end of the shrift potentially Hmm. because of that. But uh, yeah, so they did a really good job, though, at developing what space would look like from a visual effects standpoint, obviously having it being shot entirely on green screen. Right. Yeah, Um, this was definitely stunning visually. Yeah. And this was a movie I I did not rewatch this recently because my wife refused to watch this one. Yeah. Why? I think oddly enough that for my wife, who's slightly claustrophobic, that it actually is a claustrophobia thing, Uh, even though you would be in the vastness of space it's, right i think it's an isolation thing maybe hmm. for it so i had, i watched it on my own and enjoyed it it was good so in addition to it being visually stunning is it also not accurate that there is a big concern with space debris and like all the little bits and pieces of spare bolts and nuts so this is sort of an extended public service announcement about the dangers of space debris cautionary tale yeah i was reading some astronaut was talking about how every space mission that's been up in the last however many times they're always hit by something while they're up there you know and it's like a bullet just 
just hitting the surface mm-hmm. of things. But there are some problems, ones that the director will readily acknowledge. Uh, <laughs> number one, they, they started out at the Hubble Space Telescope. Then they traveled to the International Space Station. Then they traveled to, and Tiangong is actually the Chinese space station. Fun fact, the reason they have their own space station is because Congress passed in 2011 a law that says NASA cannot do anything with the Chinese government, that they cannot coordinate with China at all. And so China was like, fine, we'll have our own space station. We don't want to be on the International Space Station. Plays a role in the Martian coming up. It does. It does. But the the biggest issue with all that is that if you just look at the orbits, the distances that they are from the Earth. You might say, okay, well, Hubble is like 535 kilometers above the Earth. International Space Station is about 400 kilometers. Tiangong might is about 380 kilometers. You know, that doesn't sound too bad. You know, 130 kilometers between Hubble and International Space Station, that's, you know, you could do that in a day pretty easily. But that's completely forgetting that they're on totally different orbits. And so Hubble is pretty close to the equator. The space station is pretty far off of that. It's like 50 degrees off of the equator. And Tiangong is somewhere in between, which means that they do overlap every once in a while. Like they could fly directly overhead the other one, but it's very rare that they're doing that. It's just as likely that they'll be on the opposite side of the Earth at any given time as being anywhere near each other. And there was another issue here with untethered space flights. At the beginning of the movie, George Clooney was just like flying around like, hey. You're saying that even when we have jetpacks that can actually do that thing, we're not going to be flying loosely in space. Well, I read this article that was talking with this astronaut and he's like, well, first of all, Sandra Bullock was the only one doing work. (laughs) (laughs) That would never be allowed. The other two were just goofing off while she's actually doing all the work and that <laughs> that would never happen. But then it also meant that they were, you know, not really connected in safe ways. Mm-hmm. It probably doesn't take too much of a little wrong move to sort of get your momentum drifting away. And then once that happens. Yeah. Also, they talked about, so this is a, a true thing that most astronauts, when they go up, they will be nauseous for two or three days, especially if it's their first time up there. So Sandra Bullock does talk about that, that she's nauseous. But the thing is that they would never do a spacewalk within those three or four days, they would always wait just to let all the astronauts get acclimated to not be nauseous because you would not want her to throw up in her spacesuit. I mean, all the vomit would just be floating in her helmet until the only thing it would stick to would be uh, surface tension with the visor. So (laughs) it would all just coat the inner lining and she would not be able to see anything and would have no way of getting back in. So and if it was um, 2001, you just flip the visor up and clean it off real fast. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And then something that people at the time, even I remember people talking about this of like George Clooney just pushed off at some point in the movie and was like, all right, I'll save you and I'll sacrifice myself. And it's like, why would you do that? It doesn't take a lot of force to get you to come back in. You know, I remember Tina Fey saying something to the effect of gravity is a movie about how George Clooney would literally rather float away in space (laughs) and spend time around a woman his own age. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And so the last movie we have is The Martian from 2015. So in this movie, astronaut Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon, is left behind on the surface of Mars. He survives by planting potatoes and digging up some radioactive stuff. And eventually he makes contact with NASA and they work together to find a way to save him. I really enjoyed this book. I read this book almost immediately when it came out. And I mean, as much as I enjoyed the movie, I enjoyed the book even more. Yeah, I would agree with that too. Yeah, this is a great movie. And all three of us, 
agreed that we enjoyed reading it and enjoyed watching it. So so I had to try it very hard, but I did find some things that were problematic. Number one, NASA was breaking the law when they worked with China to save Mark Watney. I did notice that when the HAB broke, he spent the night in his rover, but by that point, he had already dug up the radioactive source. And so he shouldn't have been as cold as that seemed out of place. And doing the Iron Man seems harder than, it made it look really hard, but it was even harder than that to, to successfully do it. So <laughs> They warned him. They told him not to. Yeah, but it was they cool that he, he was Iron Man. So That's actually the point in the movie where my wife will not watch it after that. As soon as, as he's about to launch off of Mars, she's mm-hmm. like, she'll leave. She cannot handle the stress of that last scene. So I think one of the really interesting things, a lot of attention to the detail of the science of certain things. And so like the growing of the potatoes and then what happened when the hab blew up and it instantly freeze dried all the potatoes, mm-hmm. right? That seems pretty plausible because of what Mars is like, right? And so because it's so cold, it would instantly freeze dry everything. Does that seem It reasonable? is cold and the pressure, so the pressure on the surface of Mars is roughly that of the tip of uh, the Himalayan mountains. So there is a little bit of air there. It's mostly carbon dioxide though, but the pressure there is low compared to what we would consider, but it's still, it's not like outer space. And so it's still somewhat reasonable that he would be able to have a spacesuit and his blood coagulate and, you know, clog that up. That seemed somewhat reasonable. I, I did like, we talked about in a previous movie of, oh, for Apollo 13, that we're going to just solve the problem, solve each problem as it comes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I love that mindset. That's definitely in this movie as well. So yeah, it had shades of Apollo 13 where he just takes stock of everything that he has. Yeah. And so, you know, in Apollo 13, they're back on Earth and they're like, what's on the uh, spaceship that can be used? And even Gary, Gary Sinise, he, they hand him a a flashlight. And he's like, nope, that's not the one they have. Give me the flashlight they have. Yeah. And so they take stock of everything to help solve the problem. And that's one of the first things that Mark Watney does is he like literally counts every single meal that he has. Mm-hmm. And he's taken stock of everything that he has there to try to start figuring out how to solve this problem. Yeah. He even like counts the number of calories per potato and how many calories he needs per day and how far that'll get him. And that was, that was pretty clever. But then the part about when he finally gets to the vehicle that's going to launch him up into space is the atmosphere of Mars so thin that you could take the windows out and sort of drape a tarp over the top and be fine. I mean, is it really that thin? Well, first of all, it didn't work, right? That's why they had to do all the, the Iron Man stuff, right? Was because he did the not make it to the orbit well. that they, yeah. And the tarp was there to try to still reduce some of the drag, but that wasn't enough. And so, yeah, but the the atmosphere is very thin, but yeah, it, it did definitely affect even that part of it. So how long does it actually take to get to Mars? What would that travel time be? Well, it depends a lot on how close we are to Mars. That Which is part um, of this, this story too. Yeah, that the Mars year is longer than the Earth year. And so- Sometimes we're very close to Mars and sometimes we're very far away from Mars. Presumably they would have picked a time to travel to Mars to to be somewhat close to it. But even then, the best estimates I've seen would be like three years about to get there. Mm-hmm. And and that's the same sort of thing that they ran into even with this was that they had to do a lot of calculations and figure out like, okay, well, what if they travel this way? Can we get back to Mars in time and get home and so forth? So I, I have one under problematic okay. that has nothing to do with science. Oh, So I think as much as I love this movie, one of the big weaknesses of it is the portrayal of Kristen Wiig, who's the PR person for NASA, super problematic as someone who's done PR and teaches (laughs) PR. They make her just come across as a ditz. And I'm sorry, but if you're going to reach that level at NASA and be the spokesperson for NASA, you're going to be smart. 
you're going to get it. But they use her as the character that can ask the question, you know, well, what about this? Or what about this? And it just makes her look dumb. And that's one of the things that bugs me most about this. And so that Kristen Wiig character is problematic from a non-scientific standpoint in how um, she's portrayed. Yeah. All right, so now let's let's vote quickly, and then we will announce, we'll pull out the envelope for the best science in science fiction, in your all's opinions. If we're going for, like, just accuracy, because it's based on a true story and they had to pay attention to those details, probably Apollo 13. But that um, feels like cheating, because... <laughs> <laughs> it, it does a little bit it does and so for me i think i'm gonna go with the martian just for the kind of like solving one problem then the next then the next and kind of a pragmatic approach to problem solving okay and, kevin what are your votes similar to chad i'm gonna go paul 13 is probably my number one but again it's got an asterisk because yeah. it had to be and they had a blueprint they could go back and read books written about it they could talk to level you know right. and so you were able to get it super accurate so i think i my number one has to go with the Martian because it's a wholly created story. It's a fictionalized story. Goes to extreme lengths to make sure the science is right. Yeah, that's probably where I would land. All right. And I agree with both of you. So, drum roll, please. The winner of the first Crispy Awards for Good Science in Science Fiction goes to The Martian, starring Matt Damon. And fun fact, didn't win any of its Academy Awards. Also made less money than the two before it. Which is tragic. So It's incredible because I think it's now gotten more popular in the eight years that it's come out and it's kind of been a go-to movie for people to watch well i'm gonna mail them this uh trophy yeah Yeah. absolutely all right well thank you guys for the first inaugural crispy awards i'm excited to see what the next uh next batch is going to be about yeah yeah and thanks kevin that was fun this episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of linfield university rodeo ortega wrote our theme music If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas or thoughts that you would like us to contemplate on our show, email us at crisscrossingsci.gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.